Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Skylines is brought to you by 100 Resilient Cities. Pioneered by the Rockefeller Foundation, 100 Resilient Cities is dedicated to helping cities around the world become more resilient to the physical, social and economic challenges of the growing part of the 21st century. You can find out more at its website, 100resilientcities.org. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Welcome to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. I'm John. And I'm Stephanie. Hi. Oh my God, it's you again. You're back. <laughs> how are you doing? I'm good, thank you, John. How are you? I'm all right. How how how's life on the outside? How is how is blissful freedom? <laughs> uh, let's hope that none of the people who used to employ us both who used to say that it's good. I'm good. Say so they don't listen. It's fine. They're not gonna you know safe space. I'm really well, thank you. I've almost finished the PhD. That's going in this week, and um, yeah. Oh wow. So how, how what's the turnaround of these things? Like how long after that do they? Do you still have to do your Viva and all that stuff, or did it just like say, yeah, that's it, you're fine? No, yeah, as, as you intimate, there's a big long turnaround, so um, it's about three months sometimes until the Viva, but um, we'll see. There, there might be a way to turn around faster, or it might take longer, so don't worry, the minute you can call me Dr. Boland, I will be letting you know in the strongest possible terms. Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I assume if we if we manage to do any podcasts after that, that's how you'll be introducing yourself from then on. <laughs> That's how I'll be introducing myself in all contexts from then on. Yeah, you know, you're having dinner with your parents or, or whatever. <laughs> so what are we talking about today? Okay, we are going to talk about uh, a fairly frequent topic. We're going to talk about deindustrialization or, or bouncing bouncing back from it. In a, in, a, in a few minutes, we're going to hear from uh, some, some guests from the, the very fine cities of uh, Pittsburgh and Glasgow. Also, as as the listeners will have picked up by now, this is this is very much just sort of a Skype-based version of the podcast. So please do bear with us if there's any kind of slight cuts in the in the connection. But uh, you know, we are we are doing what we can. Yeah, I should say I'm currently podcasting from a um, armchair in my living room, whereas John is actually at work. <laughs> yeah, and you know, if you if you hear anyone sort of nattering away in the background, that's just you know people. It's just you know an insight into to a Wednesday lunchtime at the New Statesman, which is you know all anyone ever wants out of, out of life i'm sure either that or my house is haunted so <laughs> maybe if you hear something in the background maybe don't tell us yeah just in case it's scary 
So, John, why do we keep coming back to this topic? Because you are not from a post-industrial city, are you? You're from kind of post-agricultural suburbia, if anything. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I'm I'm from from uh, outer London. I'm from the Essex bit of outer London, which, as you say, was largely places that grew up as dormitory suburbs around uh, uh, tube and train lines into into London. But I am gonna I'm gonna take some issue with what you just said because actually something we we don't often think about is London is also a post-industrial city. Like London was also a manufacturing centre and you know it grew as a trading post, it grew around its docks. And the only reason we kind of think of it in a sort of different category to somewhere like you know, uh, I don't know Manchester or Cleveland, Ohio, or wherever it may be, is actually because. London's already kind of made that transition to to a service economy, and and so it's not it's not so much that London isn't post-industrial. It's that when we say post-industrial, we mean that it's kind of failed to move on to to the next part of of, of what the modern economy would look like. Right. Okay. So what uh, I'm guessing, like me though, when you think post-industrial, you do tend to think of those same places. You think of kind of Manchester, Liverpool, you know, Dundee, Glasgow. Yeah, or the or the Rust Belt cities in the in the Midwest, or or actually in the the US, though there is another like New England. Something I didn't realise till I was there last autumn, but New England is also post-industrial, uh, and Boston was a very industrial city. It's just again because like it's. It's it's you know prettier and has moved on to to a service economy like we think of it in a different category but really all major Western cities at some point will have been through that industrial phase I think and it's interesting just thinking um, keeping to the UK just because it's kind of what I know best but I'd really be interested to hear from our listeners who are from outside the UK and the US what their experiences of this have been. But sticking to the UK for a minute, thinking about Cornwall on the southwest, where you have the city of Truro, where they're really trying to get broadband funding and digital tech stuff off the ground. And we think of that as a tourist destination at somewhere you go in the summer to go to the beach. But actually, there's a mining industry that's collapsed there. So in a way, that whole space is is caught in that same post-industrial phase in its life. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's certainly true. It's like if you know if you have a developed economy anywhere in the West, it will have been through that phase where most of the value came from from making stuff or putting it on boats or whatever it was. But 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 yeah, when we when we use the phrase, what we really mean is cities that kind of grew between I don't know maybe eighteen twenty and nineteen twenty. Since when they've been in a bit of a, a decline because globalization kicks in, suddenly it's cheaper to do that kind of mass manufacturing somewhere where wages are lower. And and that is a it's not quite universal, but it's fairly, fairly widespread uh, in, in the West. That there are there are places that had their boom a century or a century and a half ago. And in the last 50, 60, 70 years have been have been struggling a little bit. And and some of those places have, have bounced back much better than others. See, I'm interested in what we could do, particularly in the US, but also globally, because I know if you go back and listen to different editions of this podcast, you know, we've spoken a lot about what we could do for the north, whether that's talking about the mayoral system or talking to people like Stuart McConey and Neil Atkinson about, you know, easy things, transport links or putting a bit of funding into different bits of the northern economy. But when you think of somewhere like the US, and I know you went around the US um, just before the election, um, so I'm not going to let you go there ever again. But um, 
the cities are so spread out. It's so decentralized. You kind of go, what can you do in those places? Yeah, no, I think the scale in the US certainly makes it harder to to deal with because, I mean, one of the ideas I keep coming back to with, with the north of England is it really should be possible to turn the M62 corridor into a sort of English equivalent of, of Germany's Rhein-Ruhr area, which is not only still a big manufacturing hub, but it's actually still one of the richest parts of Germany. Like that area has survived very well. And one of the ways I think it's done that is because those cities are all very well connected. So you can have the financial centre in Frankfurt, but it's linked up to tourism in Cologne and and uh, manufacturing in places like Dusseldorf and so on. Uh, and, and that's just, for whatever reason, that just has continued to work quite effectively in a way that the north of England just doesn't and i think you know part of the explanation for that is probably that we haven't done what we could to link those cities to to jobs in the emerging service industries in places like manchester but you can kind of see how you would do that in somewhere like ohio which is you know the size of england it's much much harder to do that because the cities are that bit further spread out so you have all these places that were effectively supply chain for for detroit and when the car industry went from detroit cities you know one two three hundred miles away also suffered because of that and it's not they're too far for you to just think well, well we'll build a train line and then that will sort it out yeah exactly because when you think of an acceptable time period for car parts to be traveling between cities that's very different from the acceptable time you will spend commuting every day um yeah but it is interesting that you talk about germany because one of the things that i think has helped their city so much is having a lot of decentralized, federalized power and management over there, which is something you get in the US. I mean, maybe those questions of scale slightly scupper it when it comes to regeneration. But maybe that will kind of change things in the UK. Brings us back to the question of the mayors. Is this going to be as effective as it's been in somewhere like Germany? Or are we going to get kind of, you know, public figures who are talking about the north, but have their hands tied when it comes to actually doing much? Yeah, I think federalism is certainly useful in in terms of sort of regenerating depressed places purely because it means there will be politicians whose job it is to think about the area of a, a specific area's economic needs. And we just don't have that in England. Like all power to speak of really flows through through parliament at Westminster and you know all the people making investment decisions and so on are based in london and therefore it's much harder to persuade them of the case to to build a new railway line across the north just because they can't see the point in it instinctively in the way they could with like well obviously we need a new tube line because my commute is really crowded in the morning yeah no and it's and it's interesting thinking about that globally even thinking of places like places like brazil where i was reading the other day they now have I think it's the seventh largest IT industry. I saw that they'd gone, they'd surpassed China in the size of their digital industry, basically. But their market share is still really small. And it's basically because you don't have the Brazilian Silicon Valley. And the idea of how you connect up those spaces and you bring geography and industry into sync in a world which is you know, untethered from geographical demands is is a real challenge. Yeah, yeah. I think the problem is you need you need access to finance, you need a certain amount of political power so you can make decisions about things like infrastructure and tax policy and so on. 
and you need a sort of healthy domestic market to kickstart things. And it's quite difficult to kind of bring all those things together sometimes, I think. I think it's true. And also just where people will be willing to move to, how far away from your family will you be willing to move? So actually you need to sync up a lot of different industries at the same place, especially now we're not kind of starting work in the factory at 17, retiring at 15, getting a clock for the mantelpiece. Um, gosh, 50 is optimistic, retiring at 16, getting a clock for the mantelpiece. Okay, you say that and my mind just starts working out how... <laughs> I'm 50 in like 13 and a half years, and that's really upsetting. So I'm just going to go into a little reverie about my lost youth. So, Are your guests going to come up with some solutions for us then? Well, I, I, let's, <laughs> let's not be too optimistic. But it is, you know, there are certainly some cities that have, have started to bounce back. And like we have, we've talked about this a lot in the past, about how, you know, Manchester in the last 20 years has really become uh, a place with a vibrancy to it, right? It's now somewhere that, you can imagine businesses wanting to be based because you know there's a lot of there's a lot of educational institutions there's good transport infrastructure and it's just a cool place to be so it's much easier to attract employees and that's that's not true in in every post-industrial city but that is kind of the model that that a lot of them are, are looking at so let's hear from a couple of those Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. My name's Grant Irvin, and I serve as the Chief Resilience Officer for the City of Pittsburgh. Hello, I'm Duncan Booker, and I too serve as the Chief Resilience Officer uh, for the City of Glasgow. Okay, so the obvious question is, how, how, do, how do you guys know each other? Glasgow and Pittsburgh have been connected for a number of years now through common uh, colleagues at either side of the Atlantic. And we've used those links and also those friendships fundamentally to consider issues about our two cities and their very similar trajectories in the post-war period as, as great industrial powers that obviously lost traction, lost a sense of meaning, as well as industry and sometimes population left. So we felt there were huge similarities. And, and back in the early 2000s, 
colleagues over in Pittsburgh managed to get some grant funding uh, for us from Glasgow to come over stateside and for them to come here. And both cities became part of the Rockefeller Foundation's Global 100 Resilient Cities Network. So that just added a fillip and a bit more momentum to the desire to work together and added a bit more depth to the sense in which we were very much linked through our post-industrial experience. Grant, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about Pittsburgh and its economy and really where, kind of where the city sits. So, so Pittsburgh has experienced a great deal of resurgence in the last uh, probably decade plus, but has really been on an accelerator in the last three to four years, following a, a long period of, of economic decline. Uh, so like Glasgow, we were the heart of, of industrial production for the United States particularly in, in the areas of steel manufacturing and, and advanced materials. And in the early 1980s, we had experienced a severe economic collapse and the diaspora of our population to other points in the, in the United States and went through a, a period of a decade plus of a lot of questioning and soul searching with regards to what the future of, of the city would be. Um, over the course of the last generation, we have lost uh, about half of our population within the city proper. Uh, so we're a very dense uh, populated city in, in terms of uh, both population and geography. And it has been kind of the, the leadership of both government and universities and uh, third sector, what we call nonprofit organizations that have really banded together and charted a course for kind of the, the new economy in Pittsburgh. So today in places where manufacturing concerns, you know, that employed uh, 20,000 people along a riverfront factory have re been replaced with, you know, the, the new economy of uh, technology, of biotechnology and uh, uh, computer science, uh, automated innovation, uh, as well as robotics have really started to become the leading edge of the Pittsburgh economy, in addition to core sectors like healthcare and higher education. Duncan, obviously you're, you're in Glasgow. How familiar is this, is this story to you? It's an incredibly familiar story. It's amazing the number of parallels between our two cities, uh, separated by the Atlantic Ocean, but connected by, I think, a very similar history as great industrial cities with our post-war challenges and in many ways with our resurgence. Very similar to Pittsburgh, Glasgow entered the 20th century as, as a city of a million people. We launched a quarter of all the world's commercial shipping, uh, and we sent around the world almost a quarter of all the world's locomotives as well, built at that time. So an incredible powerhouse of the industrial age, and, and with all the meaning that that gave to, to working life, but particularly for communities that, that relied upon those great factory jobs. And again, like Pittsburgh, we play our part in, in two world wars, uh, and then we lose uh, across the, the second half of the 20th century, both population and industry. We halve the population down to half a million, uh, and we lose many of those jobs, those, those industrial jobs, never to return. And with that, with that loss, a sense of the meaning as well is, is, is also, unfortunately, torn asunder. But with that having been said, just like Pittsburgh, we've drawn on our assets. We've got world-class educational institutions. We're a great sporting city. Uh, and we have great cultural assets such as museums, galleries and one of the most vibrant artistic communities anywhere in Europe. Uh, and we've used those really to try to, I suppose, invent and, and reimagine our city uh, as a place where we were European city of culture in 1990. 
We held the Commonwealth Games in 2014, uh, and we're a city that's diversified its economy. We're one of the biggest producers of microsatellites in uh, Western Europe now. Uh, so there is still industry there. We are still drawing on our engineering heritage, on our great universities, but we've also diversified. We're a tourist center. We're a place where people come to enjoy culture and nightlife very similar to Pittsburgh, and, and, and a strong sense between the two cities of having ridden some very severe challenges, but having come through the other side as, as perhaps stronger. But with still a lot of the um, legacy of those challenges to face in terms of urban inequalities, poor health, unequally distributed across our cities, uh, and all the challenges that go with that. So what, what are the benefits of the kind of bilateral relationship that's developed between your two cities? You know, one of the things I, I'd probably start off with is is the personal relationships that, you know, that have brought us together and the ability to share that, that common heritage and history. But, you know, building on top of those relationships and history is, I think, the opportunity that uh, we're starting to see with regards to forging our future. Uh, and that is really looking at, you know, the opportunities that we see, not just in, in kind of technology, education and medicine and culture and the arts, but really finding ways in which uh, cities can formatively create kind of the, the next generation of, of economic and social and cultural opportunities. I think one of the unique things that uh, we've seen as part of uh, particularly the industrial uh, cities uh, that have been a part of the 100 Resilient Cities Network is, is kind of that, that common language that we share but also as we start to, uh, you know, get more engaged and share more of uh, the work that we're all doing, we're seeing kind of a, a common future uh, with regards to, to the direction of our cities. The challenges of, of what to do with post-industrial cities that grew up around the particular industry or particular docks or whatever, um, and, mm. and those industries just moved on, that's a fairly common problem the the western world over how much do you think it is possible to recover from that kind of decline i mean can any city do the kind of things that pittsburgh and glasgow are doing i think to an extent i mean we're very fortunate both cities have this incredible history of the industrial wealth that was acquired during that age being reinvested in cultural assets. So Glasgow's got fantastic museums, for instance, funded by many of the, of the people that made money from like the borough collection from, from ships. Similarly, Pittsburgh, with obviously Carnegie and Frick, the, the, great, the great steel producers, have, have institutions funded by that. So if, as a city, you've got a core of assets like that, of buildings, of architecture, of, of, of housing that can be still enjoyed by people in the 21st century, then you've got something to build on. If, on the other hand, you're a city that simply, as in the case of the former Soviet Union, revolved around a single industry and had simply a load of worker housing built, built to a particular formula with no great assets, then sadly there's very little reason why people should want to move to, to you or stay with you anymore. Where Glasgow and Pittsburgh, I think, win out is that they have that breadth and diversity of reasons for people to come here and to stay here. Glasgow's population uh, is now rising back above 600,000 again, uh, and we've got a huge student population, just as Pittsburgh does. So you've got a lot of young people who are the future innovators and entrepreneurs of tomorrow, many of whom coming from abroad or from elsewhere, in our case in the UK, who choose to stay here. Yeah, who choose to contribute to the city. And they do that because there are reasons for them to stay. Now, 
You don't get that with every city that's, that's destroyed its smokestacks and has a load of horrible contaminated land and rubble lying around. You, know, you have it in cities like Glasgow and Pittsburgh that, that have managed to move beyond that and, and to draw upon those assets. Uh, for us as well, I mean, um, you know, I, I need to say this next point somewhat guardedly, but I want to make it. Um, in the post-Brexit era, we increasingly will be dependent as a city upon our peer city networks because we won't have that access as we once had to, to the broader uh, European Union. So it becomes even more important, I think, for us in Glasgow that we, that we really foster and cultivate those city networks. Grant, I, I actually spent some time in the Midwest in, in the weeks before last year's uh, election. I mean, I went, I went to Detroit for the first time and I was really struck with a combination of you know, gilded age grandeur and there just not being anything there in terms of an economy anymore. I'm, I'm sort of thinking around the subject slightly here, but I'm curious about your views on whether cities like Pittsburgh and, and its peers can, can sort of start to lift some of, the, some of the smaller towns in the Midwest and kind of reinvigorate that entire region that perhaps is the bit that, that flipped from Democrats to Trump last year. Yeah, I, I, I think there's clearly a lot of parallels that we share with, you know, with our nearby neighbors. I mean, you use the example of Detroit, but places like uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, Cleveland, Ohio, and Milwaukee, Wisconsin, you know, the, the formula can be very much shared ac across the geographies in terms of, you know, first, I think, understanding what your assets are, but also that there is a, a shared sense of some of the common challenges that we as, as cities face. You know, how do we how do we address the modern economy? How do we deal with challenges like climate change and and also, you know, the, the, the market momentum that, that cities have in terms of always traditionally being kind of the engines of, of, of growth and development. But now, because of kind of some of the, the assets and the livability factors that cities have, becoming a place that people once again want to call home. You know, we've seen that uh, with some of our, our smaller counterparts uh, in Pennsylvania and in surrounding states where, you know, we're, we're entertaining, you know, civic leadership organizations from Buffalo, New York, and uh, some of the other cities that, that I mentioned because of, you know, the formula that, that we have have developed, you know, like like the our friends in Glasgow in terms of building on some of those those assets that were built during the industrial area, but really finding ways in which to 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 take that forward into the 21st century. And not not everybody has been able to do that. You know, cities are always and have always encountered, you know, shocks or, or, or dealt with long term uh, stresses to their systems. I think the thing that is the challenge that we face today is that, you know, those challenges of whether it's inequality or environmental degradation or how do you keep pace with a new economy are all happening at, in a concurrent fashion right now. And that's one of the things that, that we're, we're all struggling with. We've talked a certain amount about similarities between the two cities, but I'm kind of interested if there are any areas where you perhaps found surprising contrasts or things that just don't, uh, where there aren't parallels. I think, I think for us, of course, one of the big issues between British and American cities is when we were talking about health and health inequalities, um, there's a fundamental difference in that we have a, a national health service free at the point of use, and that isn't the case in the United States. And sometimes for us in, in the UK, it's, it's not always easy to understand the kind of slightly complicated uh, insurance issues that arise for, for American citizens. And I think it's always worth 
talking about how it is that governance arrangements are different because powers in which city mayors and city leaders, in, be it in Glasgow or Pittsburgh, can exercise, I think it's increasingly becoming part of the urban policy agenda. We, we in Glasgow want more powers for our city. Some of those powers, quite honestly, used to lie with us and they were taken away by national government some, some decades ago and we would like once again to be able to do certain things around regulating public transport and uh, perhaps managing an energy company, things like this. Those issues are very familiar to Pittsburgh too, I imagine, uh, but our approaches may be different. And, and obviously for us in Glasgow, it's interesting to get to know the difference between the federal, state, county and city level in the United States. And similarly, I guess, for our friends in the States to, to know the difference between a city like Glasgow and for, for your listeners especially, the difference, of course, between the Scottish government and the UK government, because increasingly now in Scotland, we have a significant level of policy devolution uh, and the differences are quite marked either side of the border in terms of, of, of different relationships relationships probably between a city and national government. I, I just add too that we're, we're, on, we're in constant contact with our friends from other UK cities, uh, particularly the Core Cities Network, which is the, the largest city economies outside of London, the, the Liverpool's, Birmingham's, Leeds of this world. And they're both our peers and our competitors. And, and many of the issues we discuss with them are, are not dissimilar from what we just talked about with Pittsburgh. But again, you know, the issues of, of how things alter from one place to another in terms of the power you can exercise uh, to do good things for your people is, I think, quite often at the centre of our discussion. Yeah, I, I would just add to that. I mean, that was one of the things that that's recently brought us together is a, is the uh, grant that we were able to jointly develop with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And the the main thrust of uh, the grant is really how we can we as as kind of partners in the states can take lessons from cities around the world in order to help improve health outcomes. And one of the things that we we were exploring as we developed our resilience strategy was, you know, kind of these conversations of health that were led by our, our health department didn't manifest themselves in the conversations that we were having with our individual residents. So residents weren't making the connection, say, to aging infrastructure to their individual health outcomes. And in the absence of having a nationalized healthcare system, one of the things that we were really interested in, in kind of learning and, and sharing with our, our friends in Glasgow is, you know, from a practitioner level or really at the community level, how can we start to, to encourage these discussions? But then also, you know, from a city service level, what are some of the decision-making either structures or, or processes that we can institute to help improve health outcomes? Can you give me like a couple of sentences on what would you like your cities to look like in half a century time? What would you like to have changed? I want to see a fairer, more just city. We think that's the basis of a more resilient city. Uh, and we want to see a, a more diverse, healthy population. Again, I would kind of echo that. I think, you know, what we've really discovered in our process is that resilience is really about how do you build people as part of kind of the city fabric. And the idea that neighbors and people working together can help build a, a stronger, more adaptive city, regardless of whatever the challenges that we face. So, John, should we do the tweets? We love a tweet round here. I'm feeling really sneaky about these tweets because we've actually been DMing about what our big question would be this week and not telling anyone I'm coming back to do it. 
that's not actually very sneaky or exciting, is it? I felt very um, Machiavellian, and actually, it's quite boring. I've, I think there are probably, I mean, there, there, there are going to be some people who will be very excited you're back this week, but it's, it's probably, you know, four people we could name between <laughs> us. And two of them are us. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure, ang- I'm sure Angry Sai will be pleased. I'm sure she will be, yeah. <laughs> okay, so we asked you, or John asked you via the City Metric Twitter account, about the industry where you live and what that industry was 50 years ago. So if you live in a town or a city, where has it come from? What was the industry that built that town? And how is it still visible where you are today? Okay, I like this one from Ollie Balam, who says, in Milton Keynes, the industry was building Milton Keynes, and they're still bloody at it. I find this interesting. So um, Owen at Problems Dog said in Oxford, the industry was universities and car manufacturing, smaller scale, but still going. I did not know there was car manufacturing around Oxfordshire. Yeah, and uh, in Cowley. Yeah, it was a huge industry. This is one of the reasons people give for, you know, Oxford is more of a real city than Cambridge, because there was this sort of manufacturing side rather than just, you know, university ponces. Oh, my God. I just I can't no, I, I can't bring myself to care about that, I'm afraid. It's, it was very important when I was a student, sort of cataloguing the difference. Because if the, this is this is totally off topic, but no, no, listen, listen. It's the city's point. It's the city's point. But one of the weird things about those two cities is it's the same place in a slightly different order. It's. Tr- I mean, it's true. I have been to both, and they are exactly the same. And I find it very funny that anyone thinks they're different at all. Unlike Manchester and Liverpool, which are very, very different, and it's important you know that. Yeah, completely different. But no, seriously, the first time I went to Oxford when I was like 30 or something, it was just like I was identifying specific street corners that we also have in Cambridge, but they're in a different place. It's very, very strange. Anyway, let's read some more tweets. I like Stephen Cook, who says that in Reading, the industries were beer, bricks, biscuits and seeds, which is quite cool. Now it's housing, retail, IT light industrial distribution things like that apparently the biscuit tin was invented in reading and there's a very good collection at reading museum otherwise you just can't really see it so, so, i mean if I, I suppose that could be a reason to go to reading i mean if you ever find yourself in reading i quite like reading i will <laughs> i used to in my in my misspent youth i used to go clubbing in reading on thursday nights and oh get god the first get the first train back to Waterloo the next morning and wake up stinking and surrounded by commuters. So yeah. I can't believe you lived in London, but you would go to Reading to go clubbing? Why? Because uh, my, my best friend, who is a gateway into that world, uh, had been at university in Reading, so he was just a regular at a night there. And you know, you know what it's like, you get to know people and you start being like, you know, it's a social circle you go see every month. So. Oh, you're much more sociable than I am. Um, Ross Picton writes in to talk about Manchester, says it is covered in converted mills and warehouses and the village where I grew up had a pub with a mining theme name. Now, this is true. I think pub names are a really interesting way of figuring out whatever the industry used to be in a city. I mean, that would suggest that in most British cities, the main industry was kings or or colourful lions. Or all bar one. Yeah, all, 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 I mean, actually, to be fair, the main industry in a lot of British cities probably is vertical drinking establishments these days. Okay, Carl Harrison says he grew up in St. Helens, which is a town known for glass making and Pilkington's glass is still there, producing glass and headquartered there. And I think that's that's, you know, with apologies to Carl, that's not a particularly interesting tweet, but... <laughs> 
Just... Yeah, I'm just I'm, I'm just being rude to the readers now. But the reason I thought it was worth reading up because something we don't talk about often is that a lot of manufacturing is still going in this country. The reason it's less important is just that it's automated. It employs far fewer people than it once did. Yeah, and I think it's interesting now, as with so many of these industries, uh, you know, arguably a class of the books market, definitely kind of newspaper subscriptions. If you want really nice artisanal lovely glass, you would still go to St. Helens. Just as if you still want gorgeous pottery, you might go to the area around Stoke or to Cornwall. But your kind of everyday common on garden bowl will be from Ikea. So the identity is still kind of there, but the volume of jobs isn't. Yeah, and this is I think this is something that often gets lost in the conversation about globalisation and and the modern economy is like people do sometimes think, well, if it wasn't for, you know, international trade or immigrants or whatever it is, we could have we could have the old economy back. But you but you can't because yeah, it's it's the the, the, the thing that has taken your job is not an immigrant, it's a robot. You know, it's very true, and it's but it but it is interesting how that how that identity remains. And there's um interesting from Bob Melling who says that textiles is the industry where he's from, and it's still around, but it's in that very much reduced high end form. So there's repurposed mills and a very dense mid rise slash rural architecture mix, and I think that's a real thing that you may still, you know, you would go and buy your very fancy tweed and where these things are made. I love going to an old factory, so maybe I'm biased here. But Bob is a, a very good person to follow on on Northern City politics, by the way, because he's just quite grumpy about Yorkshire's failure to get devolution deals. Oh, I was just going to follow him, and then you mentioned Yorkshire, and I'm not sure. Anyway, yeah, if you <laughs> if you want to follow, he's at Melling Bob. I'm going to give him a follow. There we go. But I'm I'm interested, again, a lot of these answers are from the UK, but I'm really interested in this on a global scale. So if you're listening and you are from outside the UK or outside places like Detroit and you can think of ways where this has happened or is happening or things are being repurposed or revamped where you're from, we would be really interested to get more of those outsider perspectives. Yeah, so if you're listening, please write in. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.